0: Good evening, everyone. Uh, We left off last week at Hebrews chapter 6, right around verse 17. Not too sure how far we're going to get this evening because, um, you know, I I was going to briefly talk about Melchizedek, but I don't think so now. I think actually we're going to turn to the passage of Scripture and kind of look at it. I think it's important for especially Wednesday night. This seems to be more of a where we're really dissecting the word and we're making our observation and then trying, you know, with the help of the Holy Spirit to make interpretation. And then, again, allowing the Holy Spirit to show us individually the application of it. We don't want to just kind of race through the Bible to say we, we we've got and every pastor has a different way of doing things, you know, and uh Joe has kind of switched up a little bit because of his Sunday evenings. He turned that into a prayer meeting, rather, uh, verse by verse. So Sunday took a little twist for him. Uh, but we were talking about this at the pastor's conference. And if you would listen to Damien and listen to maybe a David Rosales, all these pastors, they all have a different way of presenting the scripture. But, man, it, it's all the same scripture, though. Amen, guys? So, you know, I'm, I'm, I just don't know how I do it. So how do you do it, Harry And I went... I don't know, I read it, I study it, and then I present it. And, but anyway, maybe I do have a... Thank you, that's very encouraging. So, uh, starting with verse 17, I want to read to verse 20, and then we're going to stop and kind of back up a little bit. It says, "Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immobility of his counsel and confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie that we might have a strong and that is such a powerful word in the original strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us which hope we have as an anchor of the soul both I'm sorry both sure and steadfast And which entereth into into that within the veil, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And uh, again, that's not the first time Melchizedek is mentioned here. It's also mentioned in chapter five, I believe it is. Yes. In verse six and then later on down in verse 10. It's a very interesting character. Um, wherein God willing more abundantly to show, uh, literally to show. Uh, it's something that he wants to it's exhibit. It, it, the word is show, that's what it means in the original. It's something he wants to put on ex, exhibit, you know, uh, unto the heirs of promise. And now many uh, uh, biblical scholars, commentators, say that's uh, uh, pointing to us, heirs of promise. Some will say, no, that really is to the sons of Abraham, but we are sons of Abraham, so it does point to us as well. Uh, the immobility, meaning just it's unchangeable, It you just it's unchangeable, you just, it doesn't change. And the way he tries to show that it doesn't change, he uses two things, two immutable things, and we'll see it. Um, The imbibuity of his counsel, um, that literally means his purpose. Some say it means his word. It's not logos, it's not ramish. So it means the purpose, and he confirms it by an oath. Now, the oath is the the punch, as it were. The oath literally means um, a vow. It's something that God is going to swear by. Now, look, some get it confused. Well, well, why would God tell us not to swear in the, you know, in the the commandment? Now he says, no, he's trying to make a point here. He's not telling us, okay, now it's okay to say, I swear in God. In fact, Paul already dealt with that where, or Matthew, just let your yea be nay and your nay be nay. You don't have to say swear, I swear to God. But if you look over here in verse, um, where was that about, not, uh. Blessing I bless thee, no. um. Verse 16, where he says, For for men verily swear by a greater, uh, and and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of strife, wherein God willing... He's just saying that... Oh, verse 13, pardon me. It says, When God made a promise to Abraham... Um, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. And what, if you would go to Genesis chapter 22, this dialogue between Abraham and God, that he was going to be the father of many nations, he indeed swore. He may, he swear by his own self, and there was nothing higher to swear. So when Abraham knew that, and I think this was helpful for Abraham to believe God. Now, listen, I'm trying to slow down because it's important. The reason that Abraham could believe so deeply with such strong faith is because of the statement that God made. It wasn't that this guy Abraham out of the era of Chaldees, he was a man of just faith. He did believe in this God, I, but it was because God swore to him that his promise, and he can't swear greater than himself. He couldn't say, I swear, I swear upon a stack of Bibles. So the Bible wasn't even written then. You know, but he and that and then Abraham heard that his faith was at a point where he just believed God. He didn't question Sarah did, but Abraham didn't. And so when we read in in Romans that Abraham believed God because of what God swore to him, it was accounted unto him as righteousness. And what he's saying here is this, that because God has sworn by confirmation or counsel and by his oath, We, too, can have that kind of faith as Abraham had. Now, listen, this is why it's so important for you and I to have this this truth. The truth is this, that when a person comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, listen, when he comes to a saving knowledge and he's regeneration, he will never, ever, in all of eternity, doubt his salvation. So those who go, well, I gave my heart to the Lord and I hope it worked, He was not saved. Harry, how can you say that? Because when you're regenerated... Listen, let me tell you something. When you bring somebody back to life, if you have to resuscitate them, they've drowned, you bring them back to life, and they're starting to talk to you, they are not doubting that they're alive. Am I right? It's the same spiritual prayer. Now, will you grow? Hopefully. Will you stay a babe? Hopefully not. Well, you start to know the word and grow and you start, you become more and more like him and you start to follow him. Doubt starts to dissipate. You start to grow more into faith. And the promises, look what he says, the air of promise. Immutable thing. They can't change. And that's where Abraham was. Now, listen, this is where Paul wanted the believers to be in in Jerusalem. The Jewish Christians that were gravitating back into Judaism, they weren't going further into Christianity. They were moving further away. And even last week, I tried to bring up an example by a a Christian artist years and years and years ago who got saved and then went on air. And he he said the whole thing was just an emotional trip. And he began to embrace another denomination. He goes, that's my hope that I'll have eternal life. And he just embraced something, a a false doctrine. Was he ever saved? Well, if I go by the scriptures, no. Did he taste something? Sure he did. What, what did, you know, did he embrace the doctrine? The, the doc? Sure, he embraced it. But he was enlightened. He was enlightened. The, the lights came on for, for him. But it, Paul, the author of Hebrews says, but once they've done that and they've turned away from that experience, there's no repentance for them. Now, I can't tell you I totally understand that. But it says they're not saved. Not at all. So, again... A wearing, God willing, more abundantly to show, to put on, to put it on exhibit uh, the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel, the purpose. And he confirms it with an oath that by two immutable things in which was it was impossible for God to lie. That we might have a strong consolation. That word strong, mighty. Literally means out of Mr. Strong's dictionary. says a strong either in body or in mind. But of one who has strength of soul to sustain the attacks of Satan. Strong and therefore exhibiting many excellencies. Listen, that whole thing about our light so shining. We're exhibiting something. And it isn't out. We're exhibiting the promises of God. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross? Oh, yeah. Do you believe he was buried for you? Oh, yeah, I was there. What do you mean you were there? Well, the Bible says I was crucified with Christ, buried with Christ. I just spit on my Bible. Resurrected with Christ. And uh, and I know. Well, how do you know that? Well, I know because there's something there's something that bears witness in my heart that it's true. But then there was a promise. There was a covenant made. And I and I I'm an exhibit of it. My life has changed. You see how this all looks. I get a little excited about this stuff. The consolation. Right. The certainty, the comfort he says, he says, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us? That hope. And by the way, that hope isn't just like, well, gosh, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. No, it literally means, and check it out, We or Vincent and his word studies on this. It literally means this, guys. It means a biblical hope this a biblical hope there's a witness of the holy spirit in your heart you're reading the word and oh man all things work out for the good to them that love god and there's something that just bears witness in your heart and then when the next time you go through a trial maybe it's something like deb's going through you never doubt his love for you You never doubt that he's always with you and he'll never leave you, that he'll be with you to the end of the age. You never doubt whether to be absent from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. Why? Because of this hope. And he is going to actually call it an anchor. That hope is an anchor. Watch this. It says in verse uh, verse 19, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure, steadfast, which enters into that within the veil. And when he mentioned the veil to these Hebrew believers, when he mentioned that right away, where did their minds go? Right to the temple. And more so then, because this was pre-7, this was before Titus came in, And just decimated Jerusalem. The temple was still going. Every Yom Kippur. The high priest going into the Holy of Holies. With a little rope attached to them. Listen. There's an image here. A rope attached to the high priest. Yom Kippur. Go in high priest. He goes behind a curtain with some blood. That he's going to pour out on the mercy seat. That mercy seat by the way. Is called the seat of propitiation. Mentioned in the book of Romans. It's called literally the seat of mercy. He would go in and pour out the blood on top of it. If the man was not ready, right if there was sin in his heart man where something was wrong he would kill over and die that rope was to bring them out so in a way their anchor was this priest that was going in this anchor with a rope attached to him right going in if he doesn't make it he kills over and dies and he says that but our hope this anchor is in God's promise it's in, it's having this consolation, having this comfort that what Jesus has done for us, the death, burial, resurrection, that there should be no doubt. None. Zero. Nada. None. Well, I doubt her. It's a little condemning. Well, well wait a minute, Christian. You're, you're not doubting your salvation. Well, no, but there's a lot of other things that I doubt. I get that. I've been there, done that. Right? When, when my dear friend came down with that brain tumor, I gravitated right back to my granddaughter who had this, almost the same kind of brain tumor. And wrote, right away, right, that fear started to kind of generate, get bubble up again, and I, no. And started to doubt, can God do this? Sure, we all do. But we get through that, don't we? And we hold on to the, the hem of his garment, as it were. And we take the ride with him. Amen, guys? And we know, though, well, we have this sure foundation. We have this hope. And it comes from a biblical certainty of who and what and where we, we're going. Let's, t- a little, before we go, well, whether the forerunner is for us, entered, in, uh, entered, even Jesus, made a high priest, but after the order of Melchizedek. Now, before I get into this Melchizedek, um, again, mentioned in the Old Testament only twice there in in genesis chapter 14 then david will use him again in a prophetic messianic psalm and that is psalms 110 but i want to talk a little bit about an anchor because i had this image in my mind i'm one of these guys i love archaeology and i get this um biblical archaeology magazine and i just love it in fact i think joe you, you got me a subscription to it and uh, I read all the articles, and some of it's bogus, you know, and some of it, but some of it is really good. And I remember once uh, reading in a passage that um, they found these anchors uh, in a Sea of Galilee, and then they found more anchors off the coast of the Mediterranean Sea that dates back before Jesus' time period. And, um, and they, literally, they're, they're kind of stones. And uh, you could tell where the rope would go through the stone, and the stone literally would be used as the anchor to hold it, in it. But you're on a lake; you really don't need an anchor. As you can imagine, it you know, with the kind of the hook on the ends, um, it's just a weight, so they wouldn't drift off. But after, um, like the Roman during the Roman period, and and the the, the um, other. Nations, when they began to build ships, they they developed the anchor with um, the two hooks on the end. Now, I read this article, and again, I found it again, and Josh uh, turned me onto it this morning, where they believe they found the four anchors that was holding the boat. It was at Acts 17 where they set off the anchors with um, Paul the Apostle on it. How many of you guys remember that story in the book of Acts, right? They set anchors to make sure they wouldn't dash against the ground. Well, there would have been four anchors to try to keep that boat in. And they literally believe... They found the four anchors. So I really went online. I want to find this and see if it's true. And guess what? It is true. But it isn't made out of a stone. It's literally made out of, somehow they were able to mix lead and some type of uh, other iron. And there's a hole in the middle where the staff would have gone through it, the wooden staff. They literally found four of them. They were all in kind of a row where they would have held a ship together. And many people believe that is that now that is your biblical archaeology 101 lesson for today but why do i bring that up because i started to think i somebody just gave me a sailboat it's just tiny little thing it's only like 16 foot long and it has an anchor to it and i thought well if you just wanted to stop you throw the darn thing out and that's how much boating i know about and you just stop well that's not completely the truth you'll stop but you might not it might not be where you want it and uh, so I kind of did a little bit more research and figured, no, I'm going to die out in the water once I launch this thing. So uh, I started to do a little bit of research, and I came up with some really odd things about an anchor. Sorry, this is, you know, this is a little stupid, isn't it? I'll give you a break from Melchizedek. Um, an anchor is a device of strength. It's a device of strength. It's an instrument of strength. So when we look at this passage, we can say we have this hope. But if it, if it isn't real biblical certainty, biblical hope, it isn't the anchor God wants you to have. If, you, if you're being anchored by emotionalism, which many believers today, especially in the Pentecostal circles of people, their anchor is how they feel. Any of you guys like that? Hey, how's your walk with the Lord? Well, I feel pretty crummy. Well, that's not a good anchor. Some people believe that their anchor is in doctrine. It's in a a, a theological position, Arminianism, whether you're whatever, Presbyterian, I'm this or that. And that's their anchor. You're going to drift, you're going to doubt. But it is a divisive strength. You're strong in the Lord because of your anchor, not because you're good at Calvary. You're strong in the Lord because of these promises that God keeps laying on in your heart. You're able now to pull them out, you know, like a holster. You have a promise for everything you come against. And people are going, why doesn't that guy, why doesn't, why, why doesn't that gal just drift away with everything they're going through? Because they have an anchor. And it's on biblical certainties. It is used to connect a vessel to a rock. Or a bottom of some sort. Which, by the way, is that foundation. That anchor again is on the promises of God. Literally, an anchor today, once it's thrown out by my little reading today, it literally will grab a hold and literally will turn the vessel around almost in the direction you want it to go if you know how to use it then if you don't want it to be in that direction because it's the wrong direction, you use a different anchor to make the, the mat or the bow to start to go a different way. And it's all about how you know how to use the anchor. And by the way, if you want to set sail, move on, there is a technique how to get remove that anchor. You just don't pull it up. It won't come. That's how fastened it is in the muck or the mire, or whatever it's launched its hooks into. It stops it from drifting. How many saints that we know have drifted away? They've drifted away because no anchor. And I'll tell you, sometimes that current moves slow and sometimes it moves fast. Damien Kyle years ago did a message on drifting. Maybe you can Google it, dig it up. Great message. He talked about a time where he was bodyboarding or You know, the smaller boards, whatever that is. And uh, all of a sudden, he didn't know it. But he and his brother got caught in a riptide. And they thought, oh, we'll just go sideways. That's how you get it. But by the time they got out of the riptide, he thought he was a mile out in the ocean. That's how fast it took him out. And you look at young believers who get caught up in emotionalism or bad doctrine. How fast they leave the church. How fast they leave the body of Christ. No anchor. Just moving on. As quick as the current will take them drifting away sometimes listen it's due to the wind it's not the current of the water it's the wind of the air and what really does drive a young believer back back and forth every what wind of doctrine i believe with all my heart with with those those sure biblical certainties god's promise god's vow to us That when we have that, and that is our hope, that's our anchor. When it is down and it's on that foundation, you know who our foundation is. I don't care how strong that wind is, how impressive that doctrine might sound. Or how glorious it might appear. But when you hear the teaching of wherever that... No, that's a wind of false demonic teaching. And I'm not setting my sail here. Also an anchor keeps us from dashing on rocks. That's what happened with Paul. I think it, again, if it's not Acts 17, I'll I'll straighten it out last week. It's just something off the top of my mind. I think it is. But if it's not, you may remember they were going to crash. They feared for their life. They're throwing things overboard. So they put out the anchors. There would have been four mannerisms and customs teaches us that. And they would have set them things out. Why? So they would not dash against the rocks and die. That's exactly what we need to do as believers so we don't die spiritually. So, the, f- the first five chapters of Hebrews is not applicable to us. We have tasted. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, was confirmed by them, the apostles, and that heard them. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, will to to his own will. Listen, we all have experienced something from the Lord. But what's going to keep your anchor steadfast and unmovable is the promises of God, the Word of God. That's your anchor. Now, again, I think um, I better get off this anchor thing. Because the one thing he said, and I didn't agree with him, he says some anchors can be permanent or anchors can be um, temporary. And I, for the believer, there is no temporary anchors. Your anchor stays fixed. Amen? Amen. Now, who's this Melchizedek guy? Right? Back in your Bibles. Where the the forerunner is for us, entered even Jesus. Remember, the old entered once a year behind the veil. But Jesus entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Um, Look look at verse, let me read down and uh, then we'll we'll do a cross-reference quickly. It says, for this in chapter 7, Melchizedek, uh, the king of Salem... Some have said the language also can be interpreted the king of Jerusalem. I really looked into that just because I, 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 didn't, I, didn't know how, I didn't know. When I read that, I didn't know how I felt about it. And I think that's up for grabs. It doesn't mean peace. But some would say who holds Melchizedek as a real person, physical man, that he was a king of, of Jerusalem. I'll just throw that out there for you notes. Um, the king of Salem, priest, now that's very odd, priest of the most high God, because you could not have king and priest, that was forbidden by Mosaic Levitical law, Um, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. Abraham tithed To this Melchizedek. King of righteousness. And after that also the king of Salem. Which is the king of peace. Without father. Without mother. He's describing Melchizedek. Without descent. Having neither beginning of days. Nor end of life. Was made like unto the the son of God. Abideth the priest continually. Now, that's why a lot of people think that this could be a, a, um, a Christophany. A Christophany is an appearance of Christ before he was birthed in Bethlehem. And, um, and uh, a couple problems problems, and I don't know if it's a problem to me, but I'm going to throw that out to you. Is when an angel came to Abraham after the promise was made to him that he was going to be the father of many nations, and they, Sarah was barren, and they were getting older, and I think Sarah was around 100 um, when she, she bore him. So they were very well up there in age. Abraham didn't wrestle with it. My belief is because God, God swore to him and he knew that this God could not swear up upon anything higher than himself. And that just did something so he could believe God without a doubt that one day he would be the father of many people. And he's only going to see, by the way, uh, Isaac, right? Uh, but he knew that that was a fulfillment because from Isaac, again, I don't want to give you the Hebrew... History there, but the, the, the 12 tribes, 12 tribes into the nation. But anyway, so anyway, um, while he is uh, sort of like in this Bedouin state where he's just traveling around, an angel came, comes to him, meets him at the door of his tent, gives him the same promises again that he was going to be a father. Sarah's in the back. And um, she laughs. You remember the story? The angel says, what are you laughing about? And she says, oh, nothing. I'm not laughing at all. She lies to an angel. Uh, Not smart. And if it's a Christophany, she lied to Christ. And so he goes, oh, really? Well, because you've done that, your kid is going to be named laughter. And that's exactly what Isaac means, laughter. But Abraham never wavered on the promise. Now, the reason I bring that up to you, when we deal with the subject of Melchizedek, that's not mentioned. And Abraham never gives, or Abram never, no, that time it is Abraham. Abraham never gave any indication that he knew the angel. So if Abram met him and called him Melchizedek, he would have known him at the tent. Just, that's my investigation, whatever that means. So, so but what is all this? Why would the author of Hebrews... Bring this to light. Well, he's dealing with two different orders here. Don't forget now we're in Jerusalem where it's pre 70. The temple's going on. There's all kinds of priests running around in the Levitical priesthood, that order of Aaron or the Levite priesthood. That was an order which means no one from any other tribe in, in Israel could serve as a priest. And that was, and if you tried, that was that was death, right? There was something that Aaron's sons did and, and eventually caused them. I mean, they were serious about this order. And for some for someone now, the author of this book, to say that this Jesus is a priest, but not the same order as Aaron or Levite, man, now they're all confused. Probably you're all confused. That Jesus is King Jesus. And priest, I'll touch on that in a second, but turn with me. I think I have time to do this. Go to Genesis chapter 14, and this is sort of like the rule of first mention, you know, um, uh, hermeneutical principle. Whenever you see it first mentioned, you really do need to put the brakes on a little bit and study it. And every time you go through it, you might get something different out of it. I, I need you to be a little patient with me as I stumble through these names. I was, I was thinking, I said, Lord, could you just show me how to either skip some of the verses or help me fake the names? But I'm going to do my best. And do me a favor. I'm a prideful guy. Don't come up and correct me. Don't do that. Tell Juan. Juan will tell me. And I can take things from Juan. No, I'm kidding. You can tell me anything. It says in chapter 14, and it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, and king of Sinar, Ariok, king of el Lasar, the king of Elam, and Tidal, the king of nations, that these made war with Bera, the king of Sodom, and with Beersha, the king of Gomorrah. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, there are those kings. And Shinab, the king of Adma, and Shemabur, the king of Zebolam, the king of uh, Bela, which is Zoar. Now, all these were joined together in the vale of Siddim, which is the Dead Sea. That or the Salt Sea would be the Dead Sea. Twelve years they served Chedaleomer, and in the thirteenth year, they, those kings we just read about, they rebelled. Um, in the thirteenth year. And in the fourteenth year came Chedorlaomer, and the kings that were with him. And they smote the Rephiams uh, in Ashtaroth, Kiranim, and Zamzums in Ham, and Emon's in Javakarathaim. Sorry about that, but it's the way it sounds to me. Um, by the way, let me just give you a side note because they're kind of strange names, aren't they? Um... When we went through Genesis year, years ago, I guess, um, we talked about the Zamzuims, the Emons. They were um, strange. It was a strange race. And no one can really be certain what and who they were. It tells us that this the, the sons of God came unto the daughters of men. And apparently demonic hosts, demonic angels somehow had relations with physical women. The offspring of that were these giants. It's a great study if you want to try it. In fact, you can find archaeological finds that support this, like 13-foot doors with um, um, like 2-foot door hinges and beds that only giants would sleep in. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things there. And um, Goliath was one of them. So the, the whole, the, but, but the, the struggle is they should have been annihilated during the flood. And we read about them later on in history. So there's a lot of interesting things. And, uh, and I might have had the answers back then. I just don't remember them. But anyway, Chetileamor, he's on a campaign uh, of his own. And he is going to uh, fight with them. The Horites in their Mount Seir in Eliparán which is by the wilderness. And they returned and came to Enmeshpah, which is Kadesh, and smote all the countries of the Amalekites and also the Amorites that dwelt in Hezron Tamar. And there went out the king of Sodom, remember the two kings, and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Admon, the king of uh, Zebulun, and the king of Bela which is Zoar, and they joined battle with them in the Vale of Shittim. Now, really, these are slime pits. So this guy was smart. Let's lure them in. Let's fight them in this area where there's a lot of tar pits. They're still there today, by the way. And um, it tells us... Oh, it says it in verse 10. Sorry. The Vale of Shittim, which was full of slime pits, tar pits, and the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there. And so the kings got away. And that's important to remember. But most of them... Um, were killed in battle and they that remained fled to the mountains and they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and their victuals, and went their way they took notice Lot Abrams this is before God changed his name to Abraham Abrams brother's son so it's his son uh, his brother-in-law who dwelt in Sodom and his uh, Sodom and his goods and departed Now, there came one that had escaped and told Abram, the Hebrew, very circle it, rule of first mention, you really want to study. That's very interesting that it it says the Hebrew. For he dwelt in the plains of Mamre and uh, Amorite, uh, the brother of Ashkel, the brother of Adner. And these were confederates with Abram in agreement. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, Abram armed his trained soldiers, born in his own house, 318, and he pursued them to Dan. You know, every now and then, I, I, the scribbling in my Bible is unreadable because of the years. But I, I have this thing I can barely make out. And he says, I said this. Um, how bothered are we when we hear someone is taken captive? And how far would we chase after them? And... Um, Where he chased them to is literally 120 miles to capture some or to get back someone who was captured. Anyway, just thought through that out. Verse 15, he divided himself against them. He and his his servant by night, he smote them, pursued them unto Horbab, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. And the king of Solomon, this is the guy that took off and fled to the mountains, went out to meet him after returning from the slaughters of Chedorlaomer, and of all um, and of and of the kings that were with him, and at the valley of Shiva, which is the king's dale, and Melchizedek here is our. Our buddy here, the king of Salem brought forth. This is very interesting. And a lot of people spiritualize this and you sure can. But listen, he brings bread and wine. Now, what's that a symbol of? It's sort of like communion, isn't it? Bread and wine. But that was their main diet back then. That's exactly what they did. If you came into their, into their town, there was a center square. And the, the guy who was in charge, the mayor or the governor, he would bring you out bread and wine. A lot of people would like to spiritualize and say, no, this is a sign. That, and by the way, it's a sign of the first communion in the book, you know, the book of Acts. Hey, praise the Lord. I love it. I probably will use it one day like that. But I think maybe it's one of those far stretches. Anyway. Um. It goes on and it says he was a priest of the Most High, again, king and priest. He blessed him, Ab- 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 blessed him, and blessed Abram of the Most uh, of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave. And this is that uh, Abram gave him a tithe of all. Now, again, that's, what exact, that's exactly what it tells us in Hebrews chapter 7. That this Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek. We'll saying, Well, what is the big deal? How are you dragging us out? Maybe not to you and I, but to a Hebrew, this would be a very big deal. You never gave a tithe to anyone except somebody out of the order of Aaron or a Levitical priesthood. He's breaking protocol. He is breaking culture. He's breaking policies and procedures here. Why? Because this other Melchizedek, who he's referring to, does not come from the order of Aaron, but a different order. And he is also a king and a priest. See, if you were, um, oh, maybe I'll wait till I get to, to back to Hebrews. But if you were a priest, you could never be a king. That was forbidden. But under the other order of Melchizedek, you could be. So we'll keep, we'll read down a little further. He gives him a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said unto Abram, and I really don't need to go any further, but I love this this part of the story here. The king of Sodom said unto Abram, give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. Remember? Sodom and Gomorrah fell. The kings lost everything, and then, you know. And so Abraham's giving it back to him. He said, "No, no. I just you keep all the goods, sort of like for a reward or payment." Abram, Abram says to the king of Sodom, "I have lifted up my hand unto the uh, my hand unto the Lord and the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth." That I will not take, he's made a promise, I will not take from a thread, even to a shoe latchet, that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, that you would say, I have made Abram rich. I love a church that doesn't beat their people up. I love a church, it doesn't have to say we have great programs, um, we have great light shows, we have all this fangle-dangle stuff, and man, people love to give, because then you would say, well, the reason they get that kind of money in is because of all this theatrical stuff. No, no, God said, I'll meet all your needs according to my riches and glory. And I almost, I love that about our church, I just do. Anyway, I don't want anyone to say, oh, it's because... It's a certain place. It's in a certain location. Literally, I had a guy wanting to sell me a program how to increase our tithes and offering. I, no thanks. He says, save only that which the young men have eaten. And that's sort of like what they were owed. Portion of the men which went with me and their ash call Let them take their portion. I don't want to die. don't want to sink. Go back to Hebrews and let's see if we can finish up this now. So we see this in Genesis chapter 14. The rule of first mentioned. This Melchizedek doesn't follow any Levitical mosaic. Can't fit in within the, the, the Hebrew priesthood. But God establishes him as an order. Well, where do we get that? Well, maybe I made you turn too far. Go back to Psalms 110. Psalms 110. Paul is going to allude to this fact too later on in this chapter. Watching my time here, not going to be able to get to it tonight. But he's going to spell it right out that the order of Melchizedek has no beginning, has no end. And uh, that his priesthood will go on forever, and he will spell it right out and say, "Not so with Aaron and the priesthood; they all died. They did not live in all, uh, live forever. But our priest lives on forever." It says, and this is a divinic psalm. It's very messianic. It's very prophetic. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion and rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power and in the beauty of holiness. From the womb of the morning thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord has sworn and he will not repent. See how this all kind of comes together that God has made a vow. he's made, He can't swear higher. He has sworn and he cannot repent. Thou art a priest Forever, meaning eternal, eternal after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath, speaking of judgment. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall find the places with the dead bodies. That takes us even into Habakkuk, some of the prophecies there. And he shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. And therefore shall he lift up the head. Go ahead back to Hebrews now. So David, and I'm sure David didn't quite understand what was going on there now. Um, because he did uh, support the Levitical, the priesthood. He knew all about. And uh, in fact, in, in another prophecy of David, he will call the, the one coming from the order of Melchizedek out of the, uh, out of the tribe of um, Judah. Judah. And that should just spark interest right away because, of course, um, they thought back way back that it would come from a different tribe. Okay, picking it up now in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. We just read this, Genesis 14, and blessed him. "...to whom also Abram gave a tenth part of all, he tied to Abram, being first interpreted king of righteousness, and after that also the king of Salem, which is king of peace, a father, uh, without father, without mother, um, without descent, there's no genealogy they could follow, having end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, a priest, abideth a priest continually." Now, listen, and I'll close with this. Richard, if you'll, if, Rich, if you'll come out. Now, when we look at this next week, um, God willing, what we're going to see um, is that you could have king and prophet. David was one. David was a king, and we just read one of his prophetic psalms, right? So you could have a king and a prophet. You could have a priest and a prophet Ezekiel was priest, but also a prophet. What you could not have, never have, is king and priest. And that's who Jesus is both, king and priest. And he has, after a different order, and his order never has an end to it. It's forever. Amen, guys? Now, that was a Bible study, right? I hope you learned something. Let's stand together and worship.